Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures, as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Baz Moffat is a former Great Britain rower, a bronze medalist in the 2007 World Championships, uh, a mother of two, a former personal trainer and a specialist in pelvic floor health. As well as that, she's recently teamed up with Dr. Emma Ross and Dr. Bella Smith to create The Well HQ. And in this conversation, we talk about everything that is women-specific training. And you might have an idea of what you think this conversation is going to sound like. But a lot of it was absolutely not the conversation I thought I was going to have with her. It's brilliant. So interesting. So fun. We talk about everything from sport at school to birth stories to pelvic floor via menopause, sports bras, periods, how the men in our lives can support women as much as women can support themselves. It's just so, so vital. If you are a woman who trains or does sport, if you are a man or a woman who trains or coaches girls or women, or if you have daughters, this is a must listen. I cannot overstate how important the work is that these three women are doing, Baz being one of them. And I just love this conversation so, so much. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Baz. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Awesome. Now, I am always excited to speak to my guests. Genuine, actual excitement. But today I'm particularly excited because I have been caught up in everything that you've been doing uh, with The Well HQ, with Dr. Emma Ross and Dr. Bella Smith. Um, And we're going to come on to that because it is just it's completely blown my mind, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) as I'm sure it has for a lot of people, which as we'll also come on to, it shouldn't have. No. um, What I want to just do a little bit of background on you, because you are, amongst other things, a former GB uh, rowing squad for a medal winner, world champion medal winner. Yeah, uh, it feels like a very long time ago now. I even, when I watch rowing on the telly, I'm like, how did I do that? But yes, back in the day, I was one of those rowers. And had you always had a quite a sporty childhood? I think you, uh, I've read that you were sort of A for effort type, kind of uh, yeah. always battling through. I tried so hard at sport. I absolutely loved it. I didn't come from a sporty family at all. Um, but for me, sport was my leveller. Like I, I really, as a child, I didn't really feel like I fitted in anywhere. Do you know, like I kind of like felt I definitely wasn't in the cool group at school. But I felt that sport was the place where I could really just truly be me. And so I absolutely adored it. And from a really young age, you know, I was obsessed with the Commonwealth Games and the, you know, and the Olympics and sort of Colin Jackson and Sally Gunnell and Nympha Christie and that kind of era. And they were just, I just found them all so inspirational. Um, I've always just had this dream of being an international athlete. How did you go from sort of, you know, you, you by your own admission, not being you know, one of the best of the yeah. fastest, really like putting yourself to, because, you know, I'm not a rower, but my dad uh, stroked the Cambridge Blue Boat back in the day. So I know from, just from the stories that that's a brutally hard sport. Like, I mean, all sport is hard, but that's a, 
it was not it was not predictable that that's you know like I think that if you were doing any talent ID program I don't think I'd have qualified for any of them whatsoever um it was more I didn't start I'd loved sport as I said like my entire life so I'd done everything you know like I'd done I was on every single school team I just was always doing sport and then I I decided that that the, that international ship had sailed as it were and you know when you're 21 and you think oh my god I'm so old now I really need to get on with my life <laughs> like, you need to get serious now Baz, and you need to you know sort of decide what you're going to do so I then went down the corporate route and you know sort of um doing graduate jobs and I just hated them I was so disillusioned by them and I couldn't quite believe that this was what life would be it was like is this honestly like what I've been working so you know working hard at school for working hard at university for is this I cannot see this being my life so it wasn't as though I I decided okay I want to be an international athlete now it was more like I'm you know I just I just went back into sport and I chose rowing because it was going to be rowing or netball. It was kind of, I want, and the rowing got it because it was outside. It was, that was literally it. It was like, I just want to be part of a team and I like, I want to learn something new. I want to do something totally different. And I just kind of just loved it and hated it. And as I loved rowing more and hated work more, it just became more apparent that maybe I could give it a go. And I just thought, you know what, like, I've got absolutely nothing to lose. If I take, I, what I decided to do was take a gap year, what I considered a gap year, kind of at the age of 24. And I went over to Australia and I trained with an amazing squad over there. And I just decided, right, I'm going to throw everything into this. And if it's a total disaster, no one knows because I'm under the radar. No one in the UK knows that I'm doing this or like, this is the plan. So I can go over there, I can mess up, I can fail, I can have a completely disastrous experience. But also there was a real freedom to that. You know, I could just see how good can I be. And and it, and I kind of, the Australian system was so incredible. I got amazing opportunities. And then I, when I came back to trial in the UK, I was better than I thought I was. And it just kind of was a no brainer to, to really go for the squad. Because it's quite incredible that you see, you know, you had... You said, oh, at 21, I thought my life was over. But that's quite late to take up a sport, especially like rowing, because there's a lot of technique that people learn super early on. It's a bit like skiing. If you learn early, you've got the kind of innate. Yeah, so I I wasn't technically very good. (laughs) That was my, so there were people with a lot better technique. I was a a rough diamond when it came to the technical side. But I had absolute determination and I, and I made sure that like the areas where I could be better at, like, so I, I nailed all the peripheral stuff, you know, like I was like obsessed with nutrition, obsessed with recovery, obsessed with psychology. I got so into the psychology of team and like how I need to get the best out of myself, but how I realized quite quickly that if I'm in a boat, I have to make sure that everyone in that boat is like on form. So I have to work out like how to get the best out of that team because otherwise I am not going to be a good member. So I, I kind of thought I, I was technically good enough. I was physiologically good enough, but like on the edge of both of those things, not like outstanding at all, like good, but not amazing. So I just had to make the most of everything else. Yeah. Because you came you came to it with a degree, a first class degree, I hasten to add, yeah. in sports science. Also with that background of always playing sport your whole life. You know, so there I I'm I'm super interested to hear that all that stuff that people consider, as you say, peripheral stuff, ha- had made such a huge impact or ha- addition to what you were attempting to do. 
because I just knew that I was, you know, like you say, there were girls who'd done it at school. There'd been girls that had been doing it for years and their technique was, ama- it was just, it was just their muscle memory was outstanding. And the first thing a coach t- said to me was like, hold your knees, which is like a classic, you know, rowing term, like just hold your knees. And, and it was the last thing they said to me when I retired. <laughs> like it was something that, so I knew that technically, regardless of the fact that I was working, working, working at it, there were other areas which I could really exploit. And those, so I just, you know, you go for the areas where, you know, you think you can make the biggest difference, don't you? And so from there, you went on to win a medal at the world championships. And then what kind of went, because there's a sort of a phase after that where you, you know, you said that you, your mind over matter, you're sort of battering through, working as hard as you could, using all the, the sort of peripheral uh, things. And then you said life changed a little bit when you had your kids and that didn't yeah. quite work anymore. Yeah. So um, I retired from sport in 2008 and I actually didn't get selected for the Olympics. So the year before was 2007 and I was you know on the podium with the eight and we qualified the boat, but in rowing, you qualify a boat, but you don't qualify the people. Yeah. So like, the boat was off to Beijing and it was just, you know, this wasn't quite sure who was going to be in that boat. And unfortunately, I'd always been on the edge of the squad. I'd always been that like last seat, more or less. And then in, and in 2007, every single decision went my way by an absolute margin. And in 2008, every decision went against me by exactly the same margin. And, and I was just pushing against a tide and it just was never going to work. So I didn't get selected and I, and I retired and, um, and then I kind of was 30. So I, I knew I had to find a partner, find a house and like you had to get off to get my life back up where I wanted it to be. So, um, I, and then, you know, and I got married and, and got pregnant and, and I just, and I approached pregnancy because physically my body had never let me down. So physically, Whatever I asked my body to do, it did. Not instantly, but I, if I applied myself, then I could do pretty much anything. So after I retired from sport, I did some ultra marathons, I did some ridiculous swims, I and I just kind of did it. You know, like I had to train, but I did it. And I just, so I just thought pregnancy is going to be the same. I just thought, well, I got pregnant quite easily. I was, my pregnancy was fine. Birth, I'm like, women give birth all over the world. I am physically better than them. Honestly, I was so arrogant with what I thought about myself. I'm physically better. People tell me it's like a 2K rowing test, which is kind of a fitness test you do in rowing. Mm -hmm. So I'll just keep on pushing because that's the approach that has worked for me. And, and it was just an absolute disaster. Like it was an absolute disaster. And, and it really, really, that birth experience had like really long lasting impression on me. And I just couldn't believe how how hard it was and how the tools that I had relied on in the past just didn't just didn't work for me and but because I was alive and my baby was alive and I didn't have postnatal depression no one cared like everyone was like uh, and also I didn't care like I didn't even mention it I just knew that I felt awful but I was like well no one seems bothered so maybe this is just what life is like as a new mum And then I got pregnant again really quickly, like within sort of five months. And I was, I was petrified. I was genuinely petrified of having, of how this baby was going to come out of me. And I remember talking to my midwife and saying, I just, can you just tell me that I need to have a C-section and that someone will just almost put me to sleep and then I'll wake up and there'll be a baby. I just cannot, there's no way I can go through like what I've recently gone through. 
And she she was amazing. And she sat down with me and she said, Baz, like, you need, and she was a rower actually, which really, really helped. So I knew she understood me and like what it, you know, what my mentality was. She said, look, let's, let's look through what happened with your body. And she said, Baz, this is what happened. And this is why you reacted that way. I honestly think you'll be, you're brilliant at giving birth. And I'm like, how can you say that? How can you say I'm brilliant? It was the worst experience ever. And she said, no, like you, what you don't understand is that you have to give your body the environment in which it can truly perform. And you didn't give it that environment. And she said that birth is not an emergency situation. It's not a situation which needs to be adrenalized. Like you can't just pushing and pushing and pushing especially if you know it's taken two days to get these baby this baby out and so it just made me stop and realize that actually the hormones in our bodies are the best painkiller and if you work with them as opposed to against them and working with them means tapping into your female energy is a hard thing to do when you're used to having quite a male approach to your energy and a male approach to performance. Um, and, and I kind of went with it and I did it. And honestly, it was extraordinary. It was absolutely amazing. And my second baby like literally whooshed out of my body. And it was the most amazing physical thing I had ever done. And it was the moment that he came out that I was like, oh, my God, I get it. I get what what this flow state is i get what it is to truly connect to every single thing in your body and produce something amazing and i just wish i'd had the confidence to do that as an athlete like i just wish i'd had the confidence to kind of not just try to fit into a system but try and really tap into me which i had never hadn't really done to its full potential Oh my gosh, there's so much there. I love a birth story. <laughs> um, so just before I, I go, I want to go on to that sort of flow state and 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 really delve into all that stuff about understanding yourself as a woman and everything. But what, just to sort of clarify, what was it that was so awful about the first one? You say you're pushing and pushing, like physically actually pushing or t- talk to me a little bit about what you mean. Yeah, so it was it was was one of those unfortunate situations where I um like my my waters had broken but I hadn't I wasn't in labor. So often like so my waters had broken on like a Wednesday afternoon and then there's this rule that if you are, haven't had your baby within 24 hours then they need to yeah. induce you. And my, and I hadn't had my baby within 24 hours but then they were busy and so I just kind of got abandoned on this like on this random ward in this hospital and um, when my contraction started which was like 36 hours after my waters had broken and and because I I was on my, I was totally on my own and I had never and I think you know one of these and this is why we're so passionate about the work that we do now is that that was the first time I had ever been exposed to any kind of birth experience like I had never seen a friend do it I had never talked to people about it no one had ever told me about it and I was up on this ward in such pain and it was because my baby was like the wrong way around but but people just was people were walking past and it felt like they were laughing at me and they weren't laughing at me they were just smiling but in that moment I thought they're laughing at me and they were like oh you're not having your baby here you need to get down on delivery suite but we haven't got space for you so it was almost like well and I'm like I am having my baby like right now but they're like oh no the paper says you can't have it here so it was and when you're in labor, it's so intense that you can't, you can't advocate for yourself in that moment. It, you are, you are fully consumed by what's happening to your body. And I was in such pain. Like, and, and the contract, instead of normally, you know, when you go to any birthing class, they say, 
you have a contraction and then you have this lovely, then it all comes off and you have this lovely time to relax. I had no time. It was like, there was a contraction and then there was intense pain and then there was a contraction and there was intense pain. And so it was just unrelenting. And then they came up and said, would you like some paracetamol? And I literally walked, I literally screamed in their face. <laughs> I was like, I just felt that I was totally misunderstood. No one knew what I was experiencing. And then by the time that I did get down, it was like, oh my God, how has this woman got to this? It was just panic stations. And, and you know, I, I then, you know, was really motivated to go and help women after that experience. And, and I was... The NHS are brilliant at keeping you alive and they are brilliant at life and death situations. And I felt that almost I had to get into that place until anyone listened to me. And unfortunately, there, there wasn't the capacity to care for me in a non-emergency way. And that was just really, really unfortunate because it it, mattered, it affected me. And I had to have quite a lot of therapy, which I, which I didn't have, I delayed having because I didn't even realise that it was okay to have that to to process that experience. Well, I, I so much of what you said rings true for me. I bizarrely had it the opposite way around. I had a really amazing birth first time, and so swanned into the second birth, going, "Well, yeah. I'm a total yeah. goddess at this," and had almost yeah. exactly the same experience as you. And and I ended up with yeah. an emergency C-section because it it was all just like suddenly the the surgeon appeared and was like, "How the hell?" Has this woman yeah. left to this stage? And I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't even in the UK, but I, uh, for that one. Uh, but no, I totally get it. And it is traumatic. They said to me after, they said to me, they, once this baby, once, you know, my baby had arrived, they were like, oh, did you have pain relief? I was like, no. They were like, that was physically not possible, what you have just done. I'm like, well, I, it is because I've done it, but I'm bust. Yeah, it was horrendous. Uh, well, I feel, I feel, I feel for you because um, induced labour is, something I would never want to wish on anyone without certainly without pain relief anyway so and then so then you got into you got uh therapy and you had this amazing midwife and you realized as you said that really when you get into your female energy and you which is how I felt in my first birth I just I felt so empowered and it wasn't it didn't turn out as exactly in terms of where I wanted to have the baby but I totally get what you mean that just that feeling of this is what my body was meant to do yeah and that was that was I wanted a home birth by the sounds of things you know might have been a similar situation like I didn't end up having one but I didn't get into the hospital until the end like literally I I literally my baby arrived within 20 minutes of me arriving (laughs) in hospital but they were and I didn't care like that first birth I was conscious about this is embarrassing. I'm making noises I don't want anyone to hear. I was conscious of all that. I literally arrived at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital at half past seven. And and I was like, I was doing all the noises and I was with it. And like, and they said, oh, you can't have your baby here. I'm like, I don't, like this is not my problem. If you don't want me to have my baby in reception, then you get, and I was, you know, everything was hanging out. I was like, this is, I don't care. Like, I'm in my zone. I, this baby's coming. Like, I'm going with it. If you want to get me into a room, then then you do that. But I honestly don't care. And that was just because I was so in tune with what was happening and where my baby was. And, and the amazing thing with that second birth was I pushed and I could feel, and I could feel this baby coming. That second birth, I couldn't feel any, apart from, ridiculous amounts of pain I couldn't feel anything and and that's why yeah that's where the disconnect was yeah no it's absolutely I had a similar thing when when my son was born who's my first um and suddenly I got to the pushing stage and I said 
you know, I'd never had a baby before. Yeah. And I said, I said, um, I think this baby's coming. Cause I'd started to do the yeah. noise and they were like, um, can you, can you wait till, can you wait till nine 30? And I was like, what? I said, what time is it now? She said it's nine o'clock. And I was like, um, I don't, I don't think so. Because, and I'm thinking, surely you're the professional here. Yeah. Like, you know, that when a woman starts making that noise, yeah, it's she's having an actual yeah. baby, like right now yeah. and they were like well this isn't the right room and I was like I well so sad uh, the right room whatever I'm having this baby right now anyway so yes I totally I I'm with you on many of those elements <laughs> so what um after you'd had your babies and you'd been through this therapy and you thankfully got this view of exactly yeah how your body was supposed it was designed to work and mm. what, what did that apart from hopefully healing some of the trauma of the first birth and having two beautiful healthy babies what what did that change for you going forward professionally and and so on it it made me want to go deeper with women and it made so I'd been a so when I retired from uh, Rowan I went into personal training and I kind of enjoyed it I, you know I had a very successful personal training business but there was something missing. And after that second birth experience, I was like, I, I get now what, how we need to help women and we need to go deeper and we need to help them connect with, the, with who they truly are. And that's when I started to kind of really get into the pelvic floor and the pelvic health side of thing, primarily because of my birth experience. But then because the pelvic, even though men have a pelvic floor, the pelvic floor is, is, you know, fundamentally, you know, it's more important for women because they have vaginas, they have babies and they go through menopause, which those, which men don't. So that's why we, we're, we're more likely to have, more susceptible to have issues with our pelvic health. And I just thought, you know, I was reading about it and talking with friends. I was like, this is a barrier. This is a massive barrier to women being active and it's a massive barrier for women, you know, um, potentially succeeding in sport as well. And I just thought I can, we can, or I can help them with their fitness, but starting from something that's really fundamental to being a woman. And so I, um, I started just being a pelvic floor coach and, and I would take a woman, you know, ultimately, what I wanted to do really was help them with their pelvic floor and then help integrate their pelvic floor into their training program, whatever that might be, and then, then hand them over back to their normal personal trainers or back to their normal classes or their you know, or their sports program um, and, and not really stick with them for ages because I kind of like to fix problems. So I would, I would rather someone came to me and said, right, we are on this for six weeks or three months and then that's the focus and then we're off as opposed to just working with someone you know week in week out in a normal sort of pt scenario that's what i did yeah so now so, re, so now we set up the well i'm not i'm doing less of that i'm doing you know much more talks and all that kind of jazz but like that's what i did for the last six years so my, my aim was that i want to do this for six years until my my youngest gets into reception he started reception in september and i just knew that at that point i wanted to be in a position where i could do something bigger and, and i had no real there wasn't like a lineal progression. I just had this belief that when, you know, when Cooper's at school, I want to be in a place where I can really take this work into, you know, a much bigger space and meet and reach a much bigger audience. And it, and it all just kind of, it, you know, it didn't just kind of happen, but, but it did. And, um, and so I just, I just spent six years learning my craft and working with all different types of women. And the more I got into it, 
was like, I am saying the same things over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And, you know, I, will, I worked with women, you know, really sadly who suffered with sexual abuse. I worked with young athletes. I worked with, um, you know, lots of pregnant women, obviously, and postnatal women, lots of women who'd had gynecological surgeries. And there are people like that. Yeah, I'm not the only one doing this. There are plenty of people doing, doing it like this, but there's not that many. And there's not that many that can kind of take this really holistic approach to it and also give women the belief and be positive and say, right, this is where we're starting. It's 100% not where you want to be, but I've got a plan to get you into a better, you know, into a better place. And you said what you said you're saying the same things. What are those same things that you're saying? Don't be constipated. <laughs> Literally, honestly, I have that conversation all the time with women, like about constipation. The constipation chat, um, that was a big, that was like just a classic. You're more likely to be constipated, but um, because you're a woman and as you age, you are more likely to get constipated. But it's, and also throughout your menstrual cycle, there might be times when you are more constipated because of, because of, you know, progesterone, like it's, it slows down your digestion. So if, if there's less than, if there's, when progesterone is low, your digestion is slower. So more water is taken out of your stool as it's traveling around your gut. Um, but what it means is that if, if you think of your pelvis, you've got your black, your bowel at the back and you've got your, your womb, your uterus in the middle and your bladder at the front. If the, if, you are constipated. It essentially means a stool in your bowel, which you haven't excreted. It's taking up space within your pelvis, so it's more likely that you will have you will you will leak urine because you're kind of like pressing on that bladder. So that's the first reason, and the second reason is that if you're constipated, and we've all been constipated at some point in our life, you know that you have to strain mm. to excrete the stool, and that puts huge amounts of pressure on the pelvic floor, or, or it stretches the pelvic floor like beyond where it should be going. So if you're chronically in that state, it's not great, and it also massively increases your risk of prolapse, and it's, it's not a, yeah, so like essentially anyone comes to me with a pelvic floor issue, it's bowels first. Oh, right, wow. <laughs> and so who knew? Yeah, exactly who did know? Exactly. Well, you obviously. <laughs> and that, and so you're saying that there are different uh, times that pelvic floor becomes an issue or you know, it can be yes. all the time. But you know, one of the obvious ones that me as a mum I think of is well, you know, I can't do very much skipping or jumping on a trampoline yeah. because of babies. Um even though one of them came out the sunroof, uh, it still affects it. Um what are the other but then you've also mentioned that or I've read that it's it can be affected post menopause as well or during and after menopause. What happens then? Just you know, asking for a friend. Yeah. So so menopause, um, your you know your ovaries stop producing estrogen, and estrogen is responsible for about four hundred things in your body, and we have set receptors all over our body um, for estrogen. And if you haven't got estrogen in your system, then those cells don't work so well. And so um, muscles rely on estrogen for their strength and their tone. And so once estrogen's gone, then that's why, you know, we lose muscle strength and muscle tone. And the pelvic floor is a muscle and therefore, it you know, it's, um, it just reduces in its strength. And also the vaginal tissue it, it loves estrogen. And so it to get its plumpness and its like lubrication, it relies on having loads of estrogen in the system. So that's why menopause, like regardless of whether women have had babies or not, is often a really tough time in terms of their pelvic health. Wow. So yeah, yes. <laughs> it's mass. It's a huge subject, and I know that's kind of your area of expertise, as we've just discussed. But you've now linked up with Emma and Bella to put together the well. Now I came across it, I think, because. 
I heard Emma speaking on Laura Penhall and Mark Beaumont's uh, podcast. The endurance podcast, yeah. Yes, and then I interview, uh, interviewed Laura and, you know, so all sorts of connections. And I watched your very first webinar and oh. I was just absolutely blown away. Now, I am an educated, um, mm. uh, sporty woman in my late 40s with a re you know I've had I've been, had two rounds of IVF I've had two babies so I've you know I felt like I was pretty yes. familiar with my own body and and I just sat there going oh my god mm-hmm. and, and 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 you know and that's someone with that kind of background and and talk to me like oh I don't even know where to start but all the things that you talked about like periods and breasts and pregnancy and perimenopause and menopause and all the things Talk to me about what has given you the three of you this like impetus to to really start this movement. It is a movement. You're absolutely right. It's a total movement. It's a rev- we describe it as a revolution because we what has given us the impetus was that no one was doing it, and we couldn't quite believe that no one was doing it, and we're like how is no one doing this? So I spent my whole life in elite sport talking about marginal gains and talking about how can we, you know, get like 0.01 second off this time mm. by, you know, having the right feathers in our pillows at nighttime to give us a little better quality sleep. And no one talked to me ever about my menstrual cycle. No one talked to me about my sports bra, which we know now from the research is not is not a marginal gain. It's like massive, massive, you know, impacts. And also if you flip that to the other end of the spectrum, in terms of participation, like women are not participating in sport and exercise because the environment is not a place where they feel welcome or where they feel they truly belong. And so we, but there was also, you know, I, I think there is a huge amount of momentum now gathering in this space. But let's, if we look back 18 months when we started thinking about this, there was information coming out around gender data gaps i think you know caroline credo perez had written that amazing book called invisible women oh yes which i have and haven't read yet oh you you must and it's kind of and it started off this kind of a bit of a movement around oh this outrage you know around oh my god you know did you know that there's no female statues in westminster did you know that you know transport systems are totally designed for men and and it just it just created this like, and then there's another book written about how female, how about medicine, about how medicine is not designed for females and how, you know, the meds, uh, like drugs are um, tested on male rats and male cells and males. And so all this stuff started coming out and, and, but no one was providing a solution. Everyone was kind of like looking at the problem and, and identifying the problem. And that was really, really important work. But we were like, oh my God, you know what? Like we know enough, like there was enough of an evidence base to create a solution. We're also three women who have lived experiences of being women. And also the three of us have worked with thousands of women between us, helping them and making a difference. And so we thought, you know what, we can do this. We can put something together and be part of the solution. And what was amazing was that we recently did a webinar and uh, it was full of sports coaches and PE teachers and people that worked like at national governing body level. And they were all like, oh, my God, we have just accepted this. We have accepted less girls do sport. Women get paid less that there's less of a progression and you have just given us about 20 tools to use that we can implement straight away. And like, and that's what motivated us because we knew we could do it. We knew there was an absolutely brilliant combination of having an academic doctor, a medical doctor and myself being, you know, having been an athlete and being a coach 
There was this amazing combination of knowledge and experience, but fundamentally belief that health and performance can sit alongside each other. And and that has never that there is so much work to be done in that field. But that's what we fundamentally believe, that you cannot train a woman in a way that destroys her, whether that's mentally, physically, emotionally, so that the rest of her life is impacted by those two years of high, you know, two or three years of being at the top of her game. That a woman's health must be taken into consideration and, and coaches and sports have to start taking responsibility for that. Why? I know the answer to this because I've heard it, but perhaps you can explain why there has been no studies, you know, on female athletes. Yeah. So 4% of sports science research has is exclusively done on women. And it's like 60% of that is deemed to be really bad quality. So the amount of information is really, really low. It's not, so I study sports science at degree and master's level and it's, and women are just seen as too complicated because of our hormonal profile. So men have hormones, but they don't have a monthly cycle. So they don't, they fluctuate every day. So their cortisol and testosterone levels and, you know, whatever else will, will fluctuate quite predictably throughout the day, whereas women have these um, uh, monthly rhythms and cycles. And also we know that 50% of athletes are on hormonal contraception as well. So it's just, so if you think about, you can just gather a group of men and do the same kind of research on them. Actually, you need to, you, you need to factor in like, what stage of a cycle a woman is at, what whether she's on hormonal contraception or not. And it's just seen as too complicated. I remember having conversations like, you know, with my uh, lecturers and advisors, like, oh, no, we just, yeah, don't do women. Yeah. <laughs> don't do women. But they're too complex. And it's, we'll just apply, we'll apply what we learn from men to women. And it's just never, and that's, yeah, which is, and it's only, it's only just recently where the, the impact that physiology has is being recognized and the impact it has on the potential strength gains and their fitness and all that is like starting to be recognized. And it, and it's, you know, it's something that's happened sort of over the last sort of four, four or five years, really. And that's nothing given how much research there's been on male athletes in the last, however many hundreds or so years. I mean, that's just like, that's it's like a nanosecond compared to totally. And so what do you think will, or what is your hope, your dream, your sort of, absolute dream scenario that this sort of will mean for let's start with for elite athletes first of all yeah well you know I I, my dream is that health a a female that we can put the female back into being an athlete so up until now it's all about being it's been all about equality it's about being having equality of access to facilities, access to competition, the right, you know, the same quality of hotels as the men, that kind of thing. But by doing by by doing that, the, the, the female part of being an athlete has been taken out. So I really feel that like the health of a female can be taken care of in a way that's not judged or seen as a weakness so that women feel able to talk about their menstrual cycle pain talk about their fear of having endometriosis talk about the fact that when they're on the bike seat their vulva really hurt and look at it and say oh my god this is outrageous like but call it before they need surgery so that is my dream for athletes and also for sports my dream is that they they start having education programs that and teachers like we have we are we are talking to top sports doctors in the world 
who don't know what we know, right? This is, and that's because they have never, ever been taught. We are talking to heads of PE in very, very sporty private girls' schools who have been, who are men, who have got, who have themselves have gone to a, a male boarding school and they have literally had one lesson in their, in their year eight about female biology. And now they are head of PE in a girls' school. And that is a common that's a common story that comes out. So at no point is anybody taught about female physiology or anatomy. It, they talked about sex and talked about how not to get pregnant, but they're not talked about the hormones. And so we need to start incorporating. We need to start, you know, we have coaching qualifications, which are like how to coach children, how to coach primary age children, how to coach teenagers, but not how to coach females going through puberty, how to keep year 10s. Yet, what can we do for year ten girls? What what do elite ath- female athletes need? There is no there is no uh, qualification or education around this anywhere. It's bonkers. It is bonkers. I was going to ask you about you know how because men need to be part of this solution. Oh, hundred percent. And that was really, really we we spent so much time and so much money on our branding and our approach and our language around this because. We know that most female, sorry, most athlete coach relationships are female male. So most females are coached by males. And so we had to make it really, really clear that we are about females. We are not just for yeah. females. And everybody is welcome to come and learn from us. And actually what has been brilliant is that we get emails every day from guys who are like, oh, my God, thank you so much. I've been coaching girls, young girls for um, you know, for 20 years, 30 years, and I know that I've needed to know other things, but there's been no appropriate way for me to learn information. I've, I've not known who to go and ask about periods or breast or sports bras because it's been, it could well have been interpreted in the wrong way. And you have now, you've, you've brought it to me in a way that I can access and they are just so grateful for that. And how do male coaches go about that because you know you hear such horror stories of all the you know elite athletes and you know it just came out about the you know the gymnastics in the US Mm. and all that sort of thing that you hear all the time and how how is it manageable it it has to be um it has to be acknowledged that this is a tough conversation and I think you know we we have what we call like an act braver framework and it's a framework that we've kind of put together to help coaches start having these conversations in a way that is totally appropriate. So for example, we know that 50% of schoolgirls don't wear sports bras to do sport. Mm. So you can imagine if you go in as a young PE teacher and say, or an old PE teacher say, right, girls, who wear the sports bra? That could come across as a really inappropriate conversation. So you'd have to, you know, with that example, you'd write to the parents and you say, right, this is we are going to be talking about this for these reasons because these are the performance games. There is a there's a school there's a school bra or there's a, there's a these are the brands that we recommend. I'm going to be talking to your girls on Wednesday afternoon and these are the points I'm going to cover. And then in that meeting, it would be right, girls. I've written to your parents. They all know we're going to be having this conversation. It might feel a bit weird, but this is why we're having it. And it's kind of you've got to bring it down to you've always got to say why you're having the conversation and why it's important. And then I think also make making sure that you have signposting out to people that they, they might not be feel comfortable talking to you, but mm. is there a school nurse? Is there a school counsellor? Is there 
ahead of year that can take the spot you know that they can then go to and it's just making sure that you don't just go in and have a random conversation anyone on hormonal contraception like you can't (laughs) you've got you've got to acknowledge that you are going to trigger at some point you are going to trigger some stuff talking about these things and therefore you have to have built in support around it yeah oh it's fascinating Um, i'm i'm quite interested because the big thing on your um one of the big things that i keep seeing on your feed at the moment is about sports brands and this extraordinary we see because i i'm feeling really bad because i'm sitting here in a terrible bra while i'm talking to you (laughs) (laughs) and i knew when i put it on this morning that i was going to talk to you and i was like this does not fit me properly and i'd be getting in very big trouble um but I see the thing is, is not something that's ever bothered me because I am of this smaller breasted variety. Yeah. But I'm, so I'm fascinated to hear because I've always known that my girlfriends with big boobs have gone, oh, it's a nightmare. I can't run or I feel this or blah, blah, blah. But I'm fascinated to hear that, that it's important for all of us, regardless of boob size. I know it is because your breasts are just skin there's nothing holding them on do you know so they're kind of like so even so the, the brilliant story that emma ross always says tells us incredibly well is that if you were stood on the start of a marathon and you had an, your your clone next to you and the only difference was your bra so one of you had what you're wearing today and one of you had um, a really good sports bra like a well-fitted sports bra the the, the person with the well-fitting sports bra would finish a mile ahead of the person with the ill-fitting sports bra. Now that is that doesn't that doesn't matter how big your boobs are, whether you're a B cup or whether you're a D cup, whether you're an eight-minute miler or a six-minute miler. It doesn't. It makes no difference. It's the it's because our boobs move so much that it's the boobs move so much that it kind of really impacts on our biomechanics, on our stride length, on how we breathe. And it's really important that we're um, yeah that we're being that we're being fitted properly, but. Again, we're talking with schools and quite a lot of private schools who are like, oh, my God, we don't even have a sports bra as part of our kit. Like it's not. And and when I was rowing, we didn't have sports bras and it wasn't. I can't remember which world championships it was that we got them, but we were made to feel blessed (laughs) for being given a sports bra. And it wasn't a sports bra. It was a crop top. And if you had big boobs, you just had to put two on. Do you know, like it's like. The amount of technology that goes into, like, you know, the boats and the blades and the, you know, the warm-ups and everything, and no one was looking at our, our bras. And they are now just, but it's, um, yeah, it's crazy. And so how, how would one go about finding the right size and for one's build? Yeah, so there are, there are um, there's a brilliant research group in Portsmouth. So if you're like, want to throw everything at it and you've got, you know, you, you'd go and have a test or you'd go on a treadmill and they try you in different bras and they, they, you know, they put uh, electrodes on you to see how much your boobs were uh, moving. That's kind of an elite athlete kind of thing. For the rest of us, there are some, you know, there are some brilliant brands now which have bra, you know, which have research departments. And so you want to make sure most, if you're doing high impact sport, you need a bra as opposed to a crop top. So you need something that kind of, compartmentalizes both of your boobs so it's kind of you know yeah. so instead of just like having one weight it needs to you know you need to have sort of yeah, being yeah like a proper sports bra and it needs to be fitted well and I think that the um like you know that there are that shock absorber sweaty betty like and there will be more and Emma if everyone wants to be able to give you more name but they they all have bra research departments and I think Nike and Adidas are not that bad either I think they kind of like do it as well but making sure you're having that high impact and a bra a proper bra fit as opposed to a small medium large 
Yes, yes. Because the thing is, despite the fact that you know I'm not don't have big boobs, I'm 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 nearly six foot tall, so yeah. I'm, I'm big. So you know, someone people always say, "Oh, you'd be a small," and I'm like, "Well, no, I'm not yeah. because I'm quite broad." Yeah. And so it's always that. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, never. I, I'm going to go away immediately and research <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> for my marginal gains, um, or not marginal yeah, gains. Yeah, massive. Yeah, exactly. So I, one of the things I read on your website is that this quote that really struck me, and it's something that we, I spoke about right at the beginning, and that you said something, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but women shouldn't need to study how to be a woman. It should be already in our culture yeah. and environment. So what can we do as women, you know, I, I'm a mom bringing up a daughter, mm-hmm. a sporty daughter. What can we do? And also, I'm bringing up a son. So, you know, equally as important. How, what can we teach? What can I teach my daughter? You need to talk about what you're going through. So you need to talk about your, the men. And we need to use the right language. Like I, you know, my kids are quite small. They're five and six. So oh, sorry. Yeah, they are five and six. Five and six. <laughs> Forgot them. And um, I, a few weeks ago, or even a couple of months ago, they asked me a question about sex or something, or like, you know, women's bits and men's bits. And, and I used really just rubbish language and I was so ashamed of myself I was like oh for god bad if you can't use this right language how on earth can you expect other people to so from that point on I was like right I'm gonna whenever they ask me a question I'm gonna tell them as it is and I am so now we use we use exactly the right terms and actually they they are totally fine with it they are totally fine with it if I'm the one with the issues saying testicles and sperm and vagina and penis like I'm the one that kind of like finds it awkward and I think that it's just, you know, if they say, oh, what's that? And it's a tampon. You say, oh, it's a tampon. And, you know, sometimes mummy has a mummy has what's called a period every month. And you don't have, I just answer whatever question they have in a very black and white, unemotional way. I don't say, oh, it's a bit of, it's, a bit, it's something special for mummies or like, and then I think with daughters, it's, you know, when they get to eight and nine, it's making sure that, you know, if you have a partner that they're involved too. And it's like that they know that, that you have a conversation about, their periods and their menstrual cycles and what might happen and what products you think they might want to consider can they have a little bag which they take everywhere with them either you know and but the but your um but your partner can do that too like if you if they've got dads we know that dad daughter relationships are really important when it comes to sport but often when it gets to puberty that it might be just one situation where maybe that girl goes off to a, a you know a weekend event starts her period is too embarrassed to ask the dad to get some sanitary products and spends a whole day running in and out of the toilet just stuffing her pants with uh, lube yeah. and then she'll be like oh I'm not gonna I'm, there's no way I'm going away with my dad again and but had that dad been able to say oh I've got them in the bag or let's just make sure you know do you need this it's just it's just making sure that we normalize all the life stages and that that we don't hide the fact that someone's had a hysterectomy or we don't hide the fact that someone's struggling postnatally that we talk yeah. about it and so they're not they're not relying on I remember going to an amazing talk about um sex education and there was a um, a porn there was a, a lady that there was in I don't mean into porn but she was very what's got you know porn positive like she was kind of like she she, she you know she was just part of the porn scene and she uh-huh. said women the porn pornography is blamed for a lot of the issues that young people have with sex it's not porn's problem it's that they are not being educated anywhere else so we have to take responsibility for educating our children so that they don't go online to find out 
what a vagina looks like in which case if they yeah. go online and they say oh is that there's no pubic hair there's no we have to it has to smell nice we need deodorants if that's where they're getting their information from yeah. then that is not right we have to we have to be the people educating them about their bodies incredible that's really powerful stuff i've always been a bit of a believer in you know I, i'm not always using the right words i guess but uh, i'm a big believer you know in normalizing yeah. everything and I had quite a good example of that uh, growing up so I, I was lucky you know we talk about everything in this house and it's really important it's really important I, c- I couldn't agree more do you ever get overwhelmed because I read a lot of the stuff the stats that you put out on your your Instagram and the stuff on your website and the, and and I feel overwhelmed thinking oh my god there's so much that could be done that can be done that needs to be done like, are are you, do you ever get f- feelings of thinking, oh, how are we ever going to get this done? Or do you, have you managed to break it down and you think, this is my plan, we're going to nail this? Um, I think it's almost the opposite. Like we, so we're writing a book at the moment and there was, and I, you know, um, we kind of like are writing it together. And so in certain sections, some of the statistics are outrageous, like outrageous, but we're writing them in a very nonchalant way. And it's almost like we're desensitized to it. You know, we're desensitized. So I often say, Emma, this is incredible. Like, you can't just write that and not acknowledge that this is incredible. And I I don't get overwhelmed at all. I just see, I, I know that this is a five, 10 year plan. Like this, we are, we are literally at the start. And it's messy and there's loads to do, but I'm like, how excited, like women are doing so well and it's phenomenal, like the, where we're at, but we're there without any, we haven't even touched the sides on the true potential of what we can achieve. And so for me, I genuinely, and I'm not just saying this, I genuinely find it really exciting because I'm like, if we can actually educate women, educate those who support them, provide facilities and um, yeah, facilities that uh, where women feel truly welcome. Like, how amazing would that be? Oh, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and one of the things I came away from your webinar uh, with, and one of the, and the reason I am, it literally instantly messaged you, going, "Please come on my yeah. podcast," is because <laughs> of the genuine and sincere enthusiasm and excitement that I felt from all three of you. I mean, absolutely yeah. just busting through that screen. Like you were sitting, actually I was sitting in bed. So a bit weird. You were sitting in bed with me, but yeah. you know, like you were actually, I was there and I just thought, wow, this is something that they are truly genuinely enthusiastic about. We are. And you know, there was that webinar that you did, there was 800 people on that webinar and we did it four weeks later and we had 900. And it's like, how is this? We've only been going since January. We've only been going for like two, two and a bit months. And we're already generating this interest. And we are talking, you know, the business side of it will come like, you know, that will come, but like the interest and the impact and the, the way we have got into that, the top level having conversations and they, the top, the people we have, we talk to within sports, many times say almost like they feel it's a can of worms and we're described they describe our work as a can of worms and they say we don't want to open that can of worms and we all just have to sit there and take a breath and just almost wait for them to realize what they've just said (laughs) before we actually like go back at them but this is why we are playing the long game we know this is going to take ages but 
we're we're ready. We are we're here. We're not we're not in a ru- you know we're not in a rush. It's it it's it's the right. It's a hundred percent the right thing to do, and it has to happen. And we know that the three of us and everyone that works with us and supports us is like you know is is a really really strong group to help make this happen. And how are you? What do you have plans? Because it's easy for me. I have internet access. I have, you know, resources and, you know, as I say, a good relationship with my own body and sport and so on. This must be very sort of even more challenging to get to people, women specifically, without necessarily the advantages that I have. So in marginalized areas of society. Totally. And that is very much on our radar and very much you know we're also we are three white middle-class heterosexual women so we kind of that's the that's the lens that we see this world through so we are really really aware of that and it's something that we are constantly working on and it's the and and I think that the work that we're doing in school specifically although the money will probably come from independence it's very much being developed so that it will support the state system too and we can't we can't fix all women, but it's very much like it's, this is not just us going out there fixing the people that can afford to work with us or, or afford to kind of like spend money on themselves. Yeah. It's very much part of our business model, but it's, you know, we've got to have the money coming in so that we can then do the, do the charitable work as well. And so you mentioned briefly a book. Tell us about that. Well, it's a bit of a journey. <laughs> so, like, we've, um, Dr. Emma Ross, who we've talked about, is is very very clever. <laughs> it's like got a lot to say. So we we've gone along the um we we've gone along the self publishing route, but we're now kind of starting to think, well, maybe we should go traditional publishing. So we're just starting to explore that route, and and hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be able to kind of like share some more news on that. But it's the um there is a book, and it's it, it's our life. We're just it's our life's work. It's kind of like everything that we feel every woman should should know about their bodies and so that they can that that the information just isn't out there and it's it's where we feel we sit is where between academia and kind of influencer so we have you know you have all the academics who are very very clever and all the doctors uh, they're not so great always Mm. at communicating their message in an accessible way like you know that um and then you've got the influencers who kind of come from a sort of an individual perspective about like how they are coping with their lives and what's going on so we've kind of like got this book that is trying to pr- uh, provide an evidence-based approach, but also in a really real way with loads of stories and loads of practical advice and loads of top tips. So it's kind of a really accessible way to access it. There will be a book. I cannot tell you when it's going to be coming out. Um, but it's written. It's just a case of, um, yeah, working out the best way to get it out there. And social media, where can we find you? Or uh, At the well. Hash, uh, that the well HQ. Um, so we're on we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and we're on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, so we're and we're pretty active on all on all those platforms. And we're, oh, I did Clubhouse. Have you done Clubhouse yet? I totally do love Clubhouse. Do you? Oh my god, it petrified me. But I had so many people say, "Come on, Baz, come on, Clubhouse." But like, so we're we're dabbling. I mean, we we aren't there just yet, but we might be dabbling on Clubhouse. It's it petrifies me, but it's like yeah, I'm getting my head around it. And then there's the, obviously the website, and I'll put all of this in the show notes. Um, so that's great. Now, challenge Katie. What have you got for me, Baz? Pelvic floor exercises. Do you do them? Not very often. No, you don't. Right. So every single woman needs to do a pelvic floor exercises, even if 
you don't have any issues, right? Because you said you're late 40s, you are going to be perimenopausal, menopausal at some stage mm-hmm. relatively soon. So we need to get you ahead of the curve, right? So what I want you to do is if you haven't already got it on your phone, download the NHS Squeezy app, which will cost you three pounds. I do have it actually. Oh, you do? Yes. So there you go. So you need to do it, right? Yes. So you need to then do it every single day. So you need to do your 10 proper exercises, like your 10 long exercises, your 10 short exercises, once a day, every day. And after 10 days, you will start to feel it's easier. Like, but And the best top tip for me is that you will never feel like doing them. You won't go, oh, what should I do now? I know, I'll do my pelvic floor. <laughs> it just doesn't, it's just not like that. So you have to try and say, okay, just make it a habit so that you don't have to think about it. So we don't, I don't want you to kind of increase your mental load by having yeah. to think, yeah. when am I going to do these? Because you then start presenting them. Yeah. And um, so do them at a time which is like, you know, whether it's part of your exercise routine or you know, I often do them when I come into my office, I sit down, and I put my squeezy up on and I just do them then for three minutes. And it's almost like the first thing I do before I start work. Ah, good. Yes. It's always the key to starting a habit, isn't it? To attach it to something else. So yes. That it becomes a yes. Habit. 100%. Awesome. You know, because I did do it for a while and then, yeah. You need to, honestly, you need to get back on it because you, yeah. you've only lived half your life, right? right? So you need this pelvic floor to last you because if you, if you fast forward 30, 40 years, your continence is your independence and it relies, yeah. it's reliant on your pelvic floor strength. Ooh, that's a good. That's just scared me into it. <laughs> I will check. Exactly. I'll check in with you to make sure you're doing this. You can check on, check on my skipping exercises. Brilliant. Baz, thank you so much. That was absolutely just even more fascinating than I thought it would be. I'm really oh, so grateful for your time. It really Oh, so important for all of us, as you say, not just for women, but um, for our men folk to understand and be able to support as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye bye. <laughs>